Welcome to the second episode of It's in the Experience, an original podcast series produced by the Association for Experiential Education. I'm Sherry Bagley, Executive Director of AEE and host of It's in the Experience. Today, we welcome Brad Daniel and Callie Allman to share their experiential education journey and knowledge. I invited Brad and Callie to chat together because they are at differing points in their careers and they are using experiential education in different ways. Brad is co-founder and executive director of Second Nature Trek, and he has been a college professor, wilderness trip leader, and field science instructor for over 35 years. His passion is using the outdoors to engage the heart, challenge the mind, and nurture the spirit. Allie is the assistant director for challenge course and team building at University of North Carolina, Charlotte's Venture Outdoor Leadership. Along with training students and running programs for clients, she teaches courses in the kinesiology department around challenge course facilitation and leadership development. Callie calls her program style outdoor light and has a passion for ultimate frisbee and sweets. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having us. Well, I wanted to start today out by uh, talking about some of your commonalities. I know that you two have known each other for quite a while and have done some projects together, but I wondered if you all could share some of the things you have in common. All right, Brad. Well, let's figure out what we have in common outside of being members of AEE. Well, we have a love of dogs in common. That's for certain. We have a a love for laughter. I think we both like to laugh a lot. And... We also have worked with Dave Sperry. That's true. We both have worked with Dave Sperry. And I think with the love of dogs, there's one particular dog we love the most, and that would be your dog, Cassie. Yes. That's the big commonality. Let's see what else we got. Well, I I mean, as Sherry mentioned, I do love cookies and sweets. Oh, cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. If I had to choose a favorite cookie at this moment, it would probably be just a standard chocolate chip. Standard chocolate chip. Okay, well, I will go with the sweets as well, but I would probably go with peanut butter. Also a good choice. Yeah, that is a good choice. I'm with Callie on the on the chocolate chip, though. If I had to go with one cookie the rest of my life, it'd be chocolate chip. Well, that makes sense because, as you have already noted, I'm at a different stage in my career. Getting <laughs> <to this nugget. laughs> my taste has changed quite a bit, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be chocolate chip. There you go. As you age, your tastes change. So speaking of stages of career, Callie, what stage would you say you're in right now? And can you explain your your journey to get to that stage? Some days I feel like I'm early stages and I'm still walking around like a little baby deer and still figuring everything out. If I had to actually classify it in number of years, I'd probably say mid-stages. I started in the experiential education field unknowingly, like most people, uh, working at a summer camp. So I started at a summer camp as a camp counselor. And then when I was an undergrad at University of North Carolina at Greensboro, I started to learn more about the art of facilitation from another AEE member, Lauren Burton. And she showed me and opened the doors of experiential education to me and really mentored me in the field. And I kept growing in that and went and got my master's in experiential education from Minnesota State of Mankato and have just been working at different universities ever since. So I'd say probably midway through, if so, mid-years. And yeah, so it's been a great journey. I've been all over the place, both at universities. I've done some programs on my own, 
just kind of on the side. I've worked for different organizations as well. And I've gotten to work all across North Carolina and then some in the Midwest. So I've, I've kind of been all over. So thanks. And Brad, what, what would you classify your stage of your career as? I think it is fair to say at 63 that I'm in the winter of life. Uh, it's a time for reflection. It's a time to look back and to really reflect on the journey. I graduated thinking I was going to go into field research for the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, my first degree was in biology, and I thought that's where I was headed. But a funny thing happened. My career essentially started in the late Jurassic period when <laughs> there were large reptiles walking around on the earth. And uh, so I've been around for a little while. But one of the things I did find is that my love of research was not as strong as my love of teaching and facilitating. And I didn't know that beforehand, but what happened was one of my professors that I was a TA for became ill while I was in graduate school, and I had to step in and teach some of the courses. And I fell in love with teaching as a result of that experience. And that led me to kind of broadening out over time from just biology and ecology to outdoor education, uh, eventually to environmental studies as well. And so it, it was a journey of broadening out rather than narrowing down. Uh, is how it would, would describe it. And a thread running through all of that from the very beginning until now uh, in the season of reflection is experiential learning and experiential education techniques. And Brad, you recently, pretty recently, started Second Nature Trek with Andrew Bobilia and Brad Faircloth. What was the impetus for starting that business? There were several. Um, one of the things that interested me was building something from scratch that would allow me to have more freedom to determine how I spend my time. If I wanted to take on certain projects that I thought were really in the wheelhouse, then I could do so, while at the same time not necessarily taking on projects that did not seem to be a good fit for gifts, talents, skills, and interest. And so that was certainly something that I was interested in. The idea of building something from... I was at a stage in life where I was choosing whether to simply continue what I had been doing for 34 years or deciding to go in a different direction and do a little bit of edge work along the way. And so I decided that it would be fun to build something from scratch with some colleagues that we were already doing work with anyway and move it in a direction that would give us the freedom and the latitude to work on projects that we thought might make a difference in the world. And so we're really excited to have launched that in 2018. 2018. Okay. So pretty new. But you had a moment of pandemic, I'm sure, in there that put a pause on things like it did for everybody else. And the TREK in Second Nature TREK stands for what, Brad? Training, research, education, and consulting. So it's a very broad umbrella. It is not a misspelling. <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's a question I get every now and then. Oh, no. You need to misspell it? No, no, not quite. <laughs> yeah. And Callie, you work for a university system. What is the advantage of working for a university as opposed to having your own business or being, as you were for a while, kind of an independent contractor doing different programming? What helps you stay at the university? I think it's twofold. So one being built-in client base. As an introvert, sometimes going up to uh, people that I don't know isn't always the easiest. So it's nice to kind of have that built-in client base of working with classes, different student organizations. And then also we do work with corporate clients throughout the larger Charlotte metro area. So having that built-in client base, I think the other advantage is 
kind of like Brad was saying with the training aspect, I love training new students. I love training new facilitators in the field and providing them the opportunities that were given to me when I was an undergrad and opening people's eyes to another way of education, but other forms of work as well. I think so many students think, well, I'm going into business, so I've just got to do business and that's what I need to focus on, or just going into computer science and that's all I need to focus on when I'm in college. So being in a university setting where we offer both outdoor trips and then also our challenge course setting as well and classes within our department really shows students that not only are we an outdoor program but there are learning opportunities here both in experiential education and the broader sense of how do you work with others you know how do you facilitate interactions with other groups how do you manage groups how do you manage your time so it really is kind of the gamut of all the things and training our new student facilitators and then also just working with students in their classes and in their student organizations and showing them that challenge coursework and team building is more than just name games and throwing balls around at each other and human not, I think is the other really fun part. So there's a lot of really great advantages outside of just having a solid client base. But I think that the biggest one for me is training our new students and training new facilitators in the field giving back to the field of experiential education and, and really rising up the new generation of who's taking over what I'm doing now and how can we build them up to be really solid in our field, whether they decide to go into experiential education or not. How can we provide them those tools? I always tell my students, I want you to be better facilitators than I am. That's my hope for you. So I, I love working with them and they've been great. So that's another commonality you all have is working with students and you all both have a passion for that. And I know because I've seen many of your students come up and show you appreciation and love in various different ways. So it's very neat to see that happen. Callie, you hit on it a little bit, but you say that your programming is outdoor light, whereas Brad has a lot of biology in his background, you know, studying dinosaurs, et cetera. <laughs> but there's a lot of overlap between what environmental education is or outdoor adventure and what experiential education is. Can you all kind of discuss the differences and the similarities between environmental education and experiential education? And Callie, kind of describe what that outdoor light means. I know oftentimes people think experiential education is only in the outdoors and only about doing huge mountain treks or, or doing things that are super risky. But I think you both run programs that maybe don't have that element of high risk or that rugged outdoors type but more on the environmental education and outdoors light. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the outdoors light. So I like to tell people that because where I am at University of North Carolina, Charlotte with the Venture Outdoor Leadership Program, we do have our trip side. So they are running rock climbing, backpacking, hiking, whitewater rafting, whitewater cocking. That's what our department definitely does those things. And I love all of those things do some of them myself. And also we have our team building side. So we do have our traditional low ropes and high ropes courses. So we're putting on our low ropes course, we're putting people two to four feet off the ground, utilizing teamwork to get through different challenges. We also have our high ropes course, which is up to about 40 feet off the ground and getting people up outside of their sometimes mental comfort zone to get them to trust each other up in the air. And also most of our programming is done indoors or in a more sterilized outdoor setting. So we might be on the lawn of a building outside on campus. So I like to tell people when they hear higher low ropes course, you will be out there for maybe two to four hours, not necessarily going out for 10 days, essentially. And what I find is when I explain this to people, it 
kind of brings them back into their comfort zone for a lot of folks that I work with and the populations I work with in a university setting. The thought of being outside for any given amount of time is already putting them outside of their comfort zone. It's a new environment. It's something they're not used to. They might not have had any experience outside in the woods where our course is. As I tried to explain to them that, yes, we will be outside in the woods. And also, it's for a shorter amount of time. If you're uncomfortable, we will be on gravel. We're not going to be trekking through a very overgrown forest. Or oftentimes, I tell people, you know, they see our, oh, Venture Alter Leadership is coming. But actually, we're going to be inside. So I often tell people, if you feel like you're outside of your comfort zone, that's not a bad thing. And recognize that uh, it's not for an extended amount of time. So outdoor light. We do outdoors things on my side of the thing, but it's not for a crazy trek. Hopefully we're pushing people outside of their comfort zone, helping them understand the value of nature and kind of giving them that sense of place of where we are in North Carolina. And also hopefully not putting too many people outside of their comfort zone into that panic zone. So Brad, I don't know if you want to expand on that with your experiences. I tend to think of experiential education as a very broad umbrella, and environmental education uses so many experiential learning techniques and tools as part of the curriculum and then teaching people about the outdoors that uh, I think it's a really nice fit between the two fields. In fact, I think there are a lot of other fields that fit nicely under that umbrella of experiential learning as well. So I think there's a real potential for synergy and collaboration between the different fields that use experiential techniques. And I think that organizations like AEE are capable of bringing those organizations together to see what the collective synergy might be and some of the collaborative efforts that might move the work with big W, the work forward instead of the individual work of individual organizations. I think we might have a greater collective impact uh, by doing that. And in relation to what type of programming is run Currently, I'm teaching at Western Carolina in their Experiential and Outdoor Education Master's Program. And there is an emphasis on teaching, educating, facilitating indoors, outdoors, and a variety of different settings. But one thing that I think is important to note is when we think about working in the outdoors with groups, with clients, with students, there is a, a real strong trend towards more front country use these days. And Part of what we have to do is adapt and do programming for front country usage so that it can be done in an environmentally responsible way with a strong environmental ethic. I think that part of that is just wise programmatic decisions. So the extended wilderness expeditions and those aspects of what often are thought of in terms of outdoor education are still there, but there has been a trend towards a lot more front country usage. And I think we're starting to see that reflected in the programming as well as the training, as Callie mentions, that takes place to make sure that those areas are being taught about and in effectively. Yeah, I agree. From what I know of our trip side of things is that most of the programs that we're running, students are wanting to do more either a single overnight trip or a day hike. Not many people are looking for the extended trips anymore. Coming out of COVID, a lot of people had already started doing some of these day hikes and started getting more accustomed to doing some of the things on their own and are still looking for ways to explore in the outdoors, but maybe don't have the time or resources to to devote to going into those extended trips. And I also find on the challenge course side of things as well, a lot of corporate clients and student groups no longer have eight plus hours or two days to devote to doing some kind of an outdoor high ropes course experience, they're looking for something that is more indoors that still gets at these concepts that we often talk about with an experiential education of 
How do we build an effective team? How can we create a community that has efficient communication? So they're still looking to do those things, but they might not have as much time to devote to that, which then comes in to, well, how can we move our programming indoors so that we're still providing that same experience and using the same methodology within experiential education in a way that also fits the group and what they need as far as time and cost and all of those things and really accommodate the group better. I want to go back to a term that you used, Brad, which was front country. Can you explain what front country is and what the opposite of front country is? Uh, well, the opposite would be, I guess, back country, right? <laughs> yeah. Which would be more along the lines of the longer expeditions deeper into wilderness or forested areas or different remote settings. Whereas front country is really more of the day hike model that Callie mentioned. It's camping and or traveling in areas that are within a fairly close proximity time-wise and distance-wise to evacuation, to the car, the van, whatever's being used. And there can be some really exciting front country trips that are a day, maybe two days, but they're really close by and provide for a lot of micro-adventures to take place. Appreciate that explanation. So one of the things that you guys have in common also is that you both live in North Carolina. And I know you've both spent a lot of time there. What do you think is unique about working in the North Carolina environment? Well, it has become a center of a lot of outdoor-oriented tourism and activities. We have close proximity to several wilderness areas in the western part of the state, state national forest. We've got great locations for whitewater boating as well as for climbing. And we have a growing outdoor tourism industry the outdoor economy piece is really growing in this area as well. And all of that is happening in concert with each organization and each entity, as well as the schools. The schools, colleges, and universities are getting involved in that as well. I think it also offers North Carolina a very rich biodiversity in terms of the numbers of ecological communities and landscapes. You know, we've got oceans to mountains, which is a very unique and fun feature of the state. And then I would say we also have a great spirit of collaboration that exists, by and large, between state agencies and nonprofits and businesses and colleges and universities, businesses in general. I think there's a spirit of collaboration that actually helps, again, the work go forward. So I would say those are some of the unique things about North Carolina that are strengths. And I'll echo off the collaboration piece as well. A lot of the outdoor-based programs that typically use experiential education methodologies are well-established. Venture Outdoor Leadership here at USC Charlotte has been in existence for 50 years. Another local university, Davidson, also has been, or their outdoor program has been around 50 years as well. A lot of the camps over in Western North Carolina have been around for a very long time. So we have a, a really solid base of people using those methodologies in the outdoor industry. And alongside that, there's also been, as Brett has said, a huge jump in new projects in the area, a lot of new outdoor education facilities. So it's, it's this nice collaboration between what we have established and then also what is coming up, both in the outdoor recreation side, the outdoor education side, camps, universities, the research is starting to grow in this area. And I think that's where I see a lot of the collaboration is how are these some of these established programs that have been around 50 plus years really starting to help some of the newer programs so that we can branch out so we can reach more people in North Carolina and the Southeast in general. So I'd, I'd like to see that there's growth and it's not all stagnant. It's not all 
oh, well, we've been here for 75 years and we're going to just stay to ourselves. There's a lot of collaboration between all of the industries in North Carolina, which then gives us a, a more fruitful field, gives us a lot more to go off of. It continues to build and to grow because of that. And you all have cookout. We also have cookout and Bojangles. <laughs> Important places to stop and get snacks after your uh, treks. Definitely. Brad, one of the things that we talked about earlier was things that excite you. One of the questions you wanted to hit upon was what excites you that's happening in experiential education today? And can you talk about the thing that is lighting your fire right now? What is really getting you interested in experiential education and keeping your interest? I think that one of the trends we're seeing right now is a lot of the theories and ideas that have been around for a very long time in the field of experiential education are being informed by some newer avenues of research and evidence-based practices that I think are just fascinating. I think bringing neuroscience into the mix and understanding the impact of experience on everything from cortisol levels to brainwave activity, it gives us a window into understanding the nature of what people are experiencing that we did not used to have available to us. So I think that it's leading us to re-examine some old theories, some paradigms. It's, it's causing us to re-examine some things to determine, okay, does this hold up under scrutiny in light of new evidence? Should it be modified? Should it be changed? Are there new theories and ideas that will emerge from that as well? But I think neuroscience and some of the, the related activities, like I would say EEG activity, uh, certainly give us a new way to understand experience and to understand what's happening within the body when someone is experiencing something and how they can respond to it. We haven't really had that ability to the same extent in the past as much as we do now. And that excites me to understand the nature of experience. I, I've always been fascinated with how experiences sort of work their way into a person's life narrative. And what is it that causes one experience to really work its way into a person's life story? Whereas another very important experience that many would consider to be important did not work its way into the life narrative. What is it about those two experiences that really come into play? But now we're able to look at it from yet another lens through EEG brainwave activity and cortisol levels and biomarkers in general. And it gives us a, a new way to understand experience. So that excites me. And one of the things that Brad has done for AE in the past is help to host our symposium on experiential education research. So if you're looking for more research on this type of activity and, and research in general around experiential education, you can check out the symposium on experiential education research at our annual conference. But you can also find articles in the Journal of Experiential Education, which is AEE's academic journal that focuses on research in all kinds of different areas of experiential education, from service learning to how internships work, all kinds of information is in the journal, um, and that comes out quarterly. Tally, what's exciting you right now in experiential education? The one thing that Brad, as he was talking about neuroscience, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And one of the things that I was really fascinated about, and, and I'm always fascinated about, is the overlap in theories in psychology and experiential education and how I did a lot a lot more research in, in graduate school about the overlaps, but how they're also seemingly unknown. And a lot of people who are in the experiential education world might not know some of the, specifically the cognitive psychology world, the overlaps of theories. So that's always excited me. 
And I have always loved that field and also, Brad, as you were saying, the neuroscience field and how the technology has changed so much since when I was an undergrad. It wasn't really possible to do a lot of those scientific studies with, you know, using all the different technologies that we have now to look at brain activity while folks are out in the field. So I do love that. Old, um, that old commercial, this is your brain on drugs, but this is your brain on experiential education and we can see what's happening. Like. All the breaking things be going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so cool. The fact that we can now start to track those things and start tracking people as they're having experience rather than just collecting data afterwards from storytelling and all those types of things and interview processes. So I think that's really cool. On the other side, I love chatting with my students and I always go back to my students and I love hearing what they're learning. They come up with the most amazing things and our students in our outdoor adventure leadership minor, they have to complete kind of like a capstone project, a practicum as they complete our, our minor. So chatting with some of my students as they're completing that minor. And I have a few students that are looking at reflection techniques in experiential education. Most people in the challenge course industry and experiential education in general, since reflection is such a huge part, most people tend to revert to a sit and get style. So I'm going to ask the group a question. The question is going to give me responses. I'm then going to ask another question. It's a very, what we call sit and get style, question and answer style of reflection. I have a lot of students who are really interested in looking at other methods of reflection. The past few years, my co-presenter Robin Hanley and I have really started digging into introvert-friendly practices in experiential education. And as we've been chatting with facilitators and other practitioners, a lot of people in AEE and experiential education identify as introverts, which is so fascinating because so many people think of facilitators as being these outgoing, bubbly, loud people and able to engage a group. And also, that's not where most a lot of facilitators get their energy. So if we're expecting our facilitators to have that persona, use that style of interacting with others, how can we not expect that from our participants? How can we make our programs friendly for introverts? And also, how can we educate extroverts on how to kind of balance the scale in a sense? So how can we allow our extroverts insight into how introverts work, how they think, how they interact? And also on the reflection side of things, how can we change from this sit and get style or modify it so that the introverts feel comfortable and have space to put their thoughts forward? that might not be in a verbal sense. So maybe it's writing. Maybe it's interpretive dance, as a lot of my students like to do. <laughs> uh, maybe it's creating something on paper. It's art. It, what other methods can we use for reflection outside of just, here's a question, give me your response. Let's have a quick conversation. Or if it is that, how can we make it so it's creative in the sense of having those small group interactions rather than the extroverts put forth their voice. So the past few years, Robin and I have really gotten excited about researching that and looking at how can you change our practices to do that, but then also educating the the rest of the practitioners. We've been giving presentations at AEE for the past few years and have really enjoyed sharing our knowledge and sharing our experiences with other facilitators and practitioners Anywhere from trip guides to classroom educators, we see them all. So it's really cool to see how introvert-friendly practices are starting to make their way into the field, both for facilitators, but also making people aware for their participants. We also have been talking a lot about the value of sharing. And is there value in sharing with the whole group? Sometimes do we force it too much to, okay, everybody share your thoughts on X, Y, or Z thing, when sometimes it might be better to have the conversation, not do a large group share out, you know, maybe let those two people have that conversation 
sometimes I think about me, if I, I'm sharing with, say I'm sharing with Sherry, but I know that it's going to be shared to a large group and I'm going to have to put my thoughts forward to a larger group where there might be some scrutiny there. I might be more apt to withhold my thoughts and my experiences just because I know that there is a potential that could be shared out. So allowing people, like you said, that both that time to process, but also allowing people to know, like, oh, this will be shared out in a large group or we're just going to have a conversation with another person and it's just going to stay with that person. Allowing that space for vulnerability to that's important. Definitely. That conversation made me think of one of the things I learned when I was a facilitator was after you ask a question, wait seven seconds before any input. Seven seconds doesn't work well on a podcast. <laughs> but that would be uh, completely edited out uh, if we waited seven seconds for an answer. So yeah. Yeah. it made me think about that. But yeah, I, I feel like the conversation that we're digging into now is so much about how experiential education, people who facilitate programs and experiential education experiences focus on not just one thing, but so many things. I mean, we've talked about biology. We've talked about introverts and extroverts. We've talked about how to process. We've talked about brain chemistry. We've talked about comfort zones. I think a facilitator doing this, it helps to have such a broad knowledge of these things. And it is a, a unique person that can bring all this into one space. So for anyone listening who's thinking about becoming a facilitator, what advice do you have for them? How about it, Brad? You give great advice. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I would start off by saying, I think it's important that they understand the interdisciplinary nature of experiential education and seeing how it connects to so many different fields. I think that's really important because Callie mentioned drawing from cognitive psychology and some from other areas of cognitive science and seeing the relationships between the theories and what's happening. I think sometimes we can become very myopic in the way we view certain things to the point where we're not really looking out at other academic fields or disciplines or bodies of knowledge to understand how they inform our practice. And I think that's really important. I see, again, experiential education as being very interdisciplinary. And because it's interdisciplinary, I think it's also a unifying concept. It has the ability through the organizations that encourage experiential ed to pull together a whole host of other organizations, again, to move the broader work forward through collaborative efforts. I think that's really important. I think openness and humility are two qualities that I would say are very important for any facilitator to have. Openness to new ideas, not to become entrenched in doing things certain ways that, that maybe were effective 30 years ago and today may or may not be. They might be, but they might not be. Being open to reexamining old paradigms to see if they still hold up and if they're effective or are there better and newer ways of doing things, but also to approach it with uh, humility and looking at what has been done and respecting that and respecting how it was viewed at the time while also bringing it forward into the present and looking at those ideas to really ask the question, what is the most effective way to do what we're doing right now with the clients, the students, the groups that we're working with? To me, humility really is a, an important piece that we bring to our work as facilitators because there are so many things we just simply do not know, I think, coming into facilitating any type of group in more of an arrogant fashion is uh, destined to fail. Yeah, kind of going off of that, 
just the flexibility of being a facilitator. When you decide to use experiential education methodologies, you have to know that things will constantly change. I always tell my my students and my the people that I'm training, be flexible. You're going to plan for it to go one way and it's going to go completely opposite way. It's never going to go the way you imagine it. So to be flexible with that and really try new things. As Brad's saying, know that the things that might have worked 20 years ago don't work now. And sometimes there's things you did 20 years ago that you stopped doing that you bring them on back and they they work really well. Mm -hmm. And that's something I see a lot with our students is that they're willing to try new things. I think the other thing is kind of being willing to fail, I guess, fail forward. I, I think a lot of corporate people call it being able to fail forward. So recognizing, like I said, you plan for things to go one way. And rather than viewing it as failure when it doesn't go that way, recognizing, well, it didn't work for this group, but it might work for another group. Let me modify it. How can I change it? So being able to modify on the spot, to modify over time, to, as experiential educators do, to reflect on the experience you've had and continue to mold what you're doing and just keep trying. Just absorb the experiences that you have. Take every opportunity that you're given. I know Brad was saying at the very beginning, at the winter season of his career, he's now able to choose a little bit more of the clients he takes and everything. And I'm still early season, early stages, mid stages. I take every opportunity I can because I know I'm still learning a lot. And every chance that I have to work with a different group, keeping that open mind and recognizing that I'm going to take the experience, I'm going to have it, I'm going to absorb it, I'm going to learn from it, and I'm going to grow from it until... I, you know, I'm at a place where I can continue to pass that knowledge on to others. So I think for for those who are getting in, my big piece of advice is be flexible, be willing to fail, quote unquote fail, realize what quote unquote failure looks like or means for you, and just being able to evolve and to change with time. And part of that evolving and change, I agree, Callie, part of that also plays a role in how we respond as facilitators, as program directors to changes that are happening within our industry as well. You know, we're in a time where we sometimes can see programs, courses, even schools completely go away or eliminate their programs. And when something like that happens, it can be pretty disconcerting and upsetting. It's important that we realize that if a program that we developed is restructured or that goes away through some other means, Nothing is going to take away the conversations that we had with students, the ways that we invested our lives in them, the times that we encouraged them. Nothing can ever take that away, regardless of what happens to the structure of a program or a school or something along those lines. And I think that's really important because that's where the flexibility and the adaptability that you're talking about really shows up for us professionally as well in our ability to realize that programs, courses, things like that, they may or may not continue at different entities, but nothing can ever take away the times that we've invested our lives in our participants, our students, our clients, and listen to them. That is what's important, and that's what we always, I think, have to circle back to. So, Brad, you're saying it's in the experience. It's in the experience. Yes. That's the important part. Well, friends, we have spent a good amount of time together talking about a lot of amazing things. I want to thank Brad and Callie for being here and sharing with us. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of It's in the Experience. We now know that the experience itself is the important part. We hope you gained some knowledge about experiential education and had some fun. 
Join us each month to hear more stories and experiences from other voices in the community. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For additional information, resources, and a calendar of events, visit the Association for Experiential Education online at aee.org.